Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, May 31st. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Mississippi Supreme Court will hear an appeal for if a highly contested bill violates the rights of Jackson residents. Then how an Alabama man is making a name for himself on TikTok through the art of storytelling. Plus, more than $150 million are available to help connect Mississippi to the Internet. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Mississippi Supreme Court has approved a motion to expedite the appeals process in the HB 1020 lawsuit. The case was appealed to the state's highest court after a Hines County judge dismissed it earlier this month. The bill is set to take action on July 1st and would create a temporary judicial district in a majority white part of Jackson where most state government buildings are also located. The law is intended to reduce crime. Our Will Stribling speaks with Tanner Lockhead, an attorney with the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund. I think what was confirmed at our hearing is that, you know, the plaintiff spoke so powerfully about, you know, the importance of uh, the right to vote and uh, what it means to them and the history of that in Mississippi uh, and also what it means to them as Hines County residents. And so, you know, I think that we feel confident because the, I mean, the plain language of the Mississippi Constitution requires that judges shall be elected by the people of Mississippi. And we feel confident that the law is, is certainly, certainly on our side. And we feel confident that plaintiffs are able to sort of explain and articulate the significance of um, of the right to vote and, um, you know, the importance of, of adhering to the, you know, the plain meaning of the, the state constitution and um, and so I think we feel confident that, you know, if we get a fair shake, um, we we should win. There's the federal case and then the state case moving kind of along in tandem right now. Right. Um, what do you think about that, about having just these two different these two different avenues? Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important. And I think it highlights, you know, the fact that this law is HB 1020, you know, is unlawful for a bunch of different reasons. And the state court proceedings that we, you know, that we're involved in raise claims under the state constitution, which we think 
again, just by its plain text, you know, requires that judges be elected. And so we think it's clearly unlawful. But it's also true that the federal case, you know, brings claims under federal equal protection law and anti-discrimination law, and that, you know, those claims are also really important to be heard and, and to be aired out. So both are important. I think they, the the teams are, you know, are, are on the same page. And, and um, if anything, it just, again, reveals the, the really deep infirmities um, that are part of HB 1020. Another interesting um, just a facet of this case is that the chief justice of the state Supreme Court is, yeah. <laughs> is is involved and has now had to recuse himself. But so what do you think about how what, how does that dynamic affect everything now with heard by the state Supreme Court, but, you know, minus their their top man? Well, we we're seeking Chief Justice Randolph's recusal, but it's up to him if he ultimately decides to recuse. And so, um, you know, we filed a motion seeking, um, you know, seeking his recusal because, of course, as a defendant in the lawsuit, you know, we think it's a pretty fundamental tenet of due process that the person who decides the case is not also the defendant in the case. And so um, we're we, you know, are hopeful that he'll that he'll do the right thing and recuse. Um but, you know, it is just, you know, an inevitability that, you know, to bring a claim in state court under the state constitution, of course, you um, end up before the Supreme Court. And so, you know, I think, again, if plaintiffs receive a fair shake, we're confident that, you know, the plain text of, of the constitution, um, you know, is, is on our side. And so we believe the law is really clear. But but you're right. It's, it's for sure an unusual posture to be litigating a case in. And do you think that since since it was Justice Coleman that a- approved the motion, um, that the Chief Justice will recuse himself? That's a, that is that already like an early indicator that that's what's going to happen? I I don't know. Um, I don't know. I can't make a prediction about what he's going to do. I think I think everyone acknowledges right that this case is is unusual in that respect and. Um, an important part of the decision about whether to recuse is not just whether somebody is a defendant in a case, and it's not just whether someone has, you know, made comments on, you know, the merits of the claim beforehand, but it's also about the appearance of impartiality, right? It's about public confidence that, you know, when a case goes before the court, you know, judges will, will be sensitive to the fact that, you know, objective observers expect and demand you know, a level of impartiality and detachment that gives the public confidence that the decision they reach is based on the law and nothing else. And so I don't know what the chief is going to do, um, but I think it's clear that, you know, the case for recusal is strong and that, you know, no matter what decision the, the chief makes, um, you know, that decision is going to be uh, in, the, in the, the front of the sort of the front of mind for um, folks who are paying attention to, you know, to this issue in Mississippi and, and around the country. You know, the hearing is, uh, the or, well, the oral arguments are expected to be heard on July 6, which is after the law goes into effect. So um, what do you think about that, about how, you know, even if you do get it over yeah. to there, there is going to be a period where this is, you know, in, in effect? Well, I would say, you know, two things. I think first, the Supreme Court granted the motion to hear the case on an expedited timeline, you know, to begin with, in recognition of the fact that this case is important, of course, to the voters of Hines County, but, you know, but really, I think to the entire state of Mississippi and to legislators who are watching to see, you know, whether 
you know, whether and how they're able to sort of stretch their own authority under the, the plain text of the Constitution. And so the motion to expedite was granted in large part because the case is important and needs to be decided quickly. It's true, of course, that the hearing is July 6th, which is after the effective date of the appointments. But, you know, the federal case is also proceeding. And so that may affect the ability of the chief justice to make appointments. Mm-hmm. Um by the six. And we just, we don't know that. It's important that it has to be decided quickly one way or the other, for sure. Those are all the questions I had, unless there's anything you want to add to close. I suppose I would just say, you know, the reason we brought this case is because Mississippi Constitution, you know, for a hundred years has protected the right of citizens to elect judges. And it does that, you know, through its plain text. And in this case, the right is being denied to our plaintiffs, to our residents of, of Hines County, Jackson residents. Um, and that right is being denied to Jackson uh, residents only. And, you know, we think that um, the case is important because, you know, first, it's about vindicating those longstanding, you know, principles that the Constitution is binding on the legislature. But it's also important because it denies Jackson residents the ability to have autonomy over their government and to elect the officials that, that govern them. Um, and, um, you know, it, it cannot be the case that those constitutional rights are denied anywhere across the state, but it particularly cannot be the case that those rights are denied only to residents of Hines County. Attorney Tanner Lockhead is with the NAACP's Legal Defense Fund. Coming up, a man from Alabama is using TikTok to share stories about the Deep South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. Content creator Joshua Darian started making videos on TikTok about Southern urban legends last summer. Since then, the Alabama native has amassed a loyal following And as the Gulf States Newsroom's Taylor Washington reports, he's getting a lot more opportunities to tell these spooky stories. It's a beautiful morning at the Spring Villa campground in Opelika, Alabama. The sun has just risen, birds are chirping loudly, and the temperature is perfect. I'm standing in front of a 150-year-old white antebellum mansion at the center of the grounds. Local legend says that a slave was fed up with the master, the original owner, William Young, and waited for him on the 13th step. That's Joshua Darren, in one of the first TikTok videos he ever posted about urban legends. He says people have reported hearing a phantom piano and seeing a blood spot that won't wash out. And now he's giving me a tour. And this is the place that really started my journey into content creation around urban legends in the South. Spring Villa is special to Darren because it's a hometown legend. It's basically in his backyard. Some people have said that they've seen things in the tree line. Um, They've seen shadow figures. They've seen just a a wealth of different type of paranormal activity that nobody really knows where it comes from, per se. Now, it turns out that the legend isn't true. 
Darren says some of the historical facts don't add up. It's one of the things that makes urban legends special in a way because they tend to take a life of their own. Darren has had an interest in the paranormal since he was a kid. Shows like Ghost Adventures. Billy suits up with the XLS camera and heads back inside to try to get visual evidence of this male spirit. In Ancient Aliens. Are numerous depictions of pharaohs standing on mysterious ships and purporting... Were some of his favorites. And while Darren had been posting TikToks since 2020, he started posting TikToks about the paranormal and urban legends only last year. And I saw a, a space where... A lot of these southern urban legends should be told, especially in my hometown, because there's so many, but we know so little about them. Darren says he got 1,000 followers after posting just four videos about the subject. As well as some of its oldest paranormal lore. And once he started posting them regularly, it grew to 2,000. can't live in Tuscaloosa, Alabama without knowing about the Drish House. In 1837, this And then to 5,000. Unholy amalgamation of rats is apparently called a rat king. And it's one of the filthiest Now, one year later, He's amassed more than 150,000 followers. And it kind of surprised me because we're in the Bible Belt and people generally try to stay away from these urban legends. But Darren says he isn't just here to shock people. He's here to teach. He knows that some of the topics he covers can be heavy, especially since the history of the Deep South is dark. That's why it's important for him to find a balance between historical urban legends like Spring Villa and lighter ones like cryptids. The entire United States is pretty familiar with the Mobile Leprechaun. But what about the Wolf Woman? On April 8th, 1971, the Mobile Those are creatures that people believe exist, but their existence hasn't been proven. I try to be as thoughtful as possible because, for one, just being a black man in general, uh, I'm always going to approach some of these stories that have to do with, like, enslaved people a little bit differently than, I guess, the field has, typically. The care Darren puts into his craft has also caught the attention of one of his childhood idols, paranormal researcher Amy Bruni. Bruni is best known for her work on the TV shows Kindred Spirits and Ghost Hunters. Bruni says the explosion of online paranormal creators initially made her a little skeptical because some of them relied on clickbait tactics to get views. But she says Darren stood out in the crowd. I was learning new things and I was just struck by his delivery, but also just kind of how much work he put into his um, storytelling and his recounting of these things. Paranormal research has been a historically white male-dominated field with little diversity. But social media, especially places like TikTok, seems to have leveled the playing field. Everyone has access to that, and so many great voices are coming forward because of it. And um, it's changed Quite a bit from when I first started, absolutely. So I I love that. Now, Darren is joining Bruni as a guest speaker for her company, Strange Escapes. The company hosts spooky vacations all across the country. And next month, Darren will be giving a talk doing a trip in Missouri at the Belvoir Winery. It used to be an Oddfellows Asylum. So it's very creepy, really cool. (laughs) Uh, And so he was thrilled. Darren says he still finds it hard to believe how something that started as a hobby has become so successful. Diversity makes things better. And so I hope to stand in the gap as a figure that others can see and say, "Okay, he looks like me or he doesn't look like me, but he's definitely a different person covering these things. He hopes he can inspire others to follow in his footsteps. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Taylor Washington. 
The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between Mississippi Public Broadcasting and public radio stations in Alabama and Louisiana. Coming up, Mississippi is opening the bidding process to close the gaps in high-speed Internet. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. The Office of Broadband Expansion and Accessibility of Mississippi, known as BEAM, is now accepting bids for large Internet infrastructure projects throughout the state. The office has around $151 million that have been made available through various federal programming, including coronavirus relief funding. Executive Director Sally Doty says this is the first step towards taking action and helping underserved Mississippians access the Internet. She speaks with our Lacey Alexander about how the funding will be spent. This big sum of money will help us reach more unserved areas in the state, uh, locations and addresses that do not have access to broadband. And when I say broadband, I mean high-speed Internet. Are there any certain places in the state in mind that you have when you talk about expanding broadband? We have about 300,000 locations in Mississippi that do not have access to broadband. And and from here on in the interview, I'm going to say uh, high-speed Internet because I think it just helps people visualize what we're talking about a little bit better. So we have 300,000 addresses throughout the state that our office has identified, that the feds have identified that do not have um, high-speed Internet. And so uh, this $150 million, it's a little bit more than that, will go out to build some of the infrastructure. Um, it is very costly to build out that infrastructure, and, and this grant, these grants will be awarded to providers, Internet service providers across the state, and it will be done on a competitive process. And this, we hope, will serve about 35,000, 35 to 40,000 addresses. Can you kind of go into detail about how that 35,000 number was uh, found, what data was used to determine that that would be the number of unserved households that would be helped by this grant? Well, at the end of the day, it's probably not going to be the number. That is just an approximate number that we gave. Uh, By looking at information that we have as far as how much it costs, to provide service to one home, Uh, the number of of passings, we call it, how much is it per passing. So you take into consideration, uh, you know, how much the fiber cost, how much the electronics cost, how much the overall project cost, and then, you know, divide it out by the number of locations that were passed. So um, while we would like to see low cost per passing, The reality is that these unserved locations in Mississippi are unserved for a reason. They are more rural. They are in less dense areas where in the past it just hasn't made financial sense for a private company to invest private dollars there. So now with this federal input of capital, uh, it makes it a more attractive financial case to build out some of these locations. And this 
Capital Projects Fund is the first grant, really, that our, our office will be administering. Um, and then there is a larger grant pool that is coming out in the fall. Do you foresee this grant money going to big corporations like AT&T or maybe some more local businesses that uh, specialize in broadband and stuff like that in the state? I, I think we'll have some of all. I really do. And these these networks don't exist in a vacuum. You know, you've got to have uh, service coming in. And so I, I do expect there to be some of our larger companies uh, that will bid on it. And then I expect to have some small, more rural uh, companies as well. Among the entities that are expected to seek this funding are the rural electric cooperatives throughout the state. They help build out power infrastructure to connect every home to the electric grid. Michael Callahan is CEO of the Electric Cooperatives of Mississippi, which represents the 25 cooperatives throughout the state. He says the funding was originally created for rural co-ops. We've been following this money since September of 2021 when it came out. Uh, This was the first chunk of money that was not given to the FCC or to the uh, NTIA, but was instead given to the U.S. Treasury Department, which was kind of unusual at that time. The electric co-ops, uh, not only in Mississippi, but all across the country, were, were excited. Uh, we knew Mississippi's share was about $162, $163 million. The guidance that was released in September 2021 actually uh, encouraged the states, who would be the, the, the recipients of the money, they encouraged um, the state to give the money to uh, networks that are affiliated or operated with local governments, nonprofits and co-ops, providers that, in their words, um, have less pressure to generate profits and have more of a commitment to serve entire communities. And so that was just right down our alley. We were in the midst of of building uh, most of our networks. After we had such a great response from that, many of our co-ops continued on with their build-out. The pandemic really showed everyone why you needed that Internet connection to the outside world. I mean, we never dreamed we would be stuck at our homes for months at a time, that we'd be learning from home, we'd be working from home. And a lot, I think a lot of our success, if, if we don't have this worldwide pandemic, I'm not sure our broadband would be as successful as it is right now. Callahan says these promise investments encourage rural co-ops to invest in massive expansion projects, but this bidding process could prevent them from being reimbursed with the money they were promised. So when, this, when, we, when we got word of this project in September, we met with the governor's office in October, and then some, some fights ensued legislatively about who should control the money, whether it could be appropriated by the legislature and, and all that kind of stuff. And you know, while this argument was going on, we kept on building because the, the plan called for a look back. As we, as we come to the end of the, of the process now, about eight of our 17 co-ops we are building have completely built out their electrical service territories. And two or three have actually expanded outside of their electric footprint into territory that's operated by either a, another electric utility or another electric co-op. Uh, what they've done in a short period of time is remarkable. Now, on the flip side, uh, to date, those 17 co-ops have spent $1 billion dollars building out this broadband infrastructure. The Capital Projects Fund, though, the way we're understanding the rules are going to be interpreted, uh, some of our build back that we built, instead of waiting on the government uh, that we went ahead and built, it looks like now they're not going to let us have that money. I don't know. I have mixed emotions about that. We we thought we were doing the right thing, pointing it out at the tail end of the pandemic when folks needed it uh, with 
the hopes that when the state got its act together, this money would be available for us. And now it looks like it's not going to be there. Michael Callahan is executive vice president and CEO of Electric Cooperatives of Mississippi. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.